This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speak on Thriving on Disruption. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Events over the last couple of years have put a renewed emphasis on the importance of being resilient. Leaders and organizations have been walloped by the unforgiving realities of disruption and uncertainty. Often when responding to the unforeseen, doing all we can to operate, meeting expectations, following through on commitments and delivering on mission, there is little time to reflect, take stock, or even gain perspective. When faced with the unexpected, reflex and instinct seem to be what leaders and organizations alike rely on to weather the turbulence. Though these may serve as core components of a solid foundation, they are most certainly not enough. How can we make sense of a complex, nonlinear, and unpredictable world? What tools, frameworks, and insights can help leaders turn uncertainty into opportunity? And how do we rise above resiliency and adaptability to actually thrive on disruption? I'll explore these questions and so much more with my very special guest, Roger Spitz, chairman of the Disruptive Futures Institute and co-author of The Definitive Guide to Thriving on Disruption, a collection of four volumes. Roger, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Wonderful to be with you, Michael, and thank you for hosting me. So, Roger... How can we make sense of a complex, nonlinear, and ever-increasingly unpredictable world? And, and to that end, would you define for us systematic disruption and sort of deconstruct how it continually evolves? Sure. So there are a few, few elements to unpack. And I think the first element to make sense of this kind of you know complex world and unpredictable is really to do with assumptions and not to assume that the world is stable, linear, and predictable. But we'll we'll come on to that. But that's really the starting point, is, is reframing how we perceive the world and what is the true reality of the world. In terms of what we call systemic disruption, we can take a step back. I think we have two notable kind of evolutions with disruption. Joseph Schumpeter coined creative disruption, and we call that disruption 1.0. It's the industrial mutation which destroys old paradigms. One example that he gives is very much, you know, after different wars, 1950s reconstruction of certain countries in Europe. That is effectively a phenomenon of creative disruption, destruction, actually, if to use Schumpeter's terms. The most famous one in terms of what disruption is, and that's what probably 99% of the world perceives as disruption, is the Silicon Valley or the technology or Clayton Christensen definition, which is disruptive innovation. And here there's specific characteristics in terms of how an innovative product might typically be disrupting an old market. And for us, we, we label this disruption 2.0. 
Now, for disruption 3.0, it's systemic. It's omnipresent. In other words, disruption is a constant. It establishes new paradigms. And to your point, these paradigms will evolve. So it's no longer a single event, but it's a steady state, which is increasing in its impact and which has spillovers, which can ricochet and turn into something else. So that for us is, is what we call um, systemic disruption. And the important takeaway, and to answer your question as to how it evolves, is that there's an increasing cost of relying on the assumptions of business as usual. In other words, there's a rising cost of assuming that the world is predictable. And that's because there's an inverse relationship between predictability and uncertainty. So the greater the uncertainty, the harder it is to predict, the more unknown variables. And that is really the big challenge, is that assumption of reliance on business as usual. And just quickly to wrap up on that question, how does it evolve and how do you kind of think about it? That's where you need to appreciate that the singular focus of isolated or discrete disruption or specific outcomes or fixed outcomes is a wrong way of thinking about it. We need to think about constant possible evolutions. And that's where thinking about multiple futures and scenarios and or, you know, what we call foresight in, in futures fields, that's where you're looking at the next order implications and the multiplicity of possibilities and how to think about those. Mm, that's terrific. Good context. Wonderful historical context as well. Um, you know, Roger, you point out that disruption is a significant change as we understand it, but you also acknowledge that it is not inherently uh, good or bad. Um, uh, could you elaborate on that, that perspective? And you kind of alluded to it a little bit, but how can we drive disruption ourselves and harness it as a power to thrive instead of like, say, crumble? Yeah, that's key because for me, one of the aspects we try and focus on at the uh, Disruptive Futures Institute is is one of agency. In other words, we want to move from this idea of a victim mindset to one of being response-able. In other words, having the agency to reduce the degree of surprise and to challenge the assumptions so that we don't have so much of a shock. There are three elements for us in terms of the neutrality of disruption and really how to kind of minimize its impact. The first one is, what is your perspective? In other words, as we discussed earlier, if you're assuming that the world is stable, linear, and predictable, of course, you'll be shocked every time there's something that is inconsistent with that. But the question is whether your window to the world is wrong or whether the world is, is different from what it should be. So the perspective you have has a very significant impact as to whether disruption might be good, bad, or, or, or what have you. The second element is how anticipatory is your mindset? In other words, what degree of preparation is being done in advance of a possible or likely event? And we see every day that for a number of reasons we'll talk about later in the show, with short-termism, with pandemics, with, with whatever, if we're not anticipating enough, and if we're not initiating and driving the change ourselves that's required as preparation, we don't have the anticipatory mindset and therefore disruption is likely to be more negative. And the final thing is, what is the nature and timing of any response? So subsequent to any disruption, which might not be, which might suddenly happen, these, that can happen, what do you do 
to respond rapidly as these external changes occur? How do you adapt and what resilience have you embedded into your company, your business, your life, so that when these shocks do arise, you can kind of um, manage them. And so for us, the idea of neither good nor bad is really that focus on our agency, which is, you know, what are your perspectives to the world? What is your mindset? And how and when do you respond to change? That's a great insight. You know, and as a follow-up, you kind of hinted at this, Roger, but I'm wondering if we could delve a little deeper. To what extent does disruption bring, uh, as you point out, massive opportunities for new value creation and novel solutions to you know some of the world's greatest challenges? I was hoping you can give us a perspective on that. Yeah, it's it, it's an important one. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that all disruption is simply neutral or an opportunity. I'm just saying that it's more layered and nuanced than that. You know, obviously there is sometimes pure, you know, evil or adverse effects arising from, from things. But, you know, even with some of the things that can happen in the world, um, diseases or what have you, um, there's a constant path of evolution which brings in new ways of, of resolving diseases or what have you that might not have been imagined possible. So if you take, for instance, you know, healthcare is a good example. When you look at the emergence of the biotech AI platforms, you're really looking at the possibility, you know, of AI. And, and again, I'm not trying to make a huge fuss of AI. AI has, again, to the neutrality of, of change, positives, negatives, unexpected com- consequences. But one of the things for sure that AI can do is accelerate drug discovery because it's able to perform, you know, literally infinite simulations and developments. And that reduces, you know, life cycles and the cost of R&D testing. So, you know, companies like um, um, Insilico or Xencia, today, there are dozens of these, you know, AI engines, which are going through a process of drug discovery. And, and you know, Google's DeepMind is also focused very much on breakthrough work and, in, in, you know, pr- predicting protein structures, which accelerate the path to drug discovery. And this is not, you know, just kind of wishful thinking. Today, AI has discovered antibiotics. I think it was um, MIT researchers which, you know, used an algorithms to find molecules which could help treat um, antibiotic-resistant bacterial strains. And I think one of the medications, um, there was a non-human-made medication um, which has entered kind of clinical trials, the DSP-1181. Um, but the point is that if you're looking at traditional pharma, you know, drug discovery can take up to five years. And if you're looking at what these biotech AI platforms, you can reduce that cycle to potentially one year. And that has a significant impact on the world. You know, disease is, is really is really terrible. Um, and if there's a way of curing it um, or curing it quicker or better, that's that's a huge positive thing. And that comes from thinking differently around, you know, biology. And then, you know, you can take the environment, you can consider that sustainable is a new digital. You can look at, you know, what we call greenessence, the 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 renaissance through through green and the energy transition. And this is trillions of dollars which will shift in value and business models for those who are able to to scale. You know, I'm not talking about, you know, um, quick VC <laughs> turnarounds for point solutions and, and, you know, random technology. I'm talking about, you know, for those who master the right technologies with a systemic perspective that can scale in the real complex world, these are very significant 
opportunities for 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 value creation. Um, so the list can carry on quite a lot. There's alternative protein versus dairy or meat. Um, again, to the neutrality, you know, a lot of companies are developing that. It's helpful for the planet for some of them. Um, and of course, if you're a farmer in Brazil um, and own cattle, it's 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 less welcome. So. This touches upon both the duality and the opportunity for examples of value creation. Very interesting. So what are the constants and drivers of disruption? So we cluster them in five. And before I do that, I'm going to just mention why we treat constant and drivers together. And it's partly to do with thinking about life from maybe a Zen Buddhist or Eastern philosophy. If you take in, you know, mujo in Japanese, it means impermanence. And we accept that everything and everyone is constantly changing, which ties in with our idea of disruption being a constant. Um, you know, the Greek philosopher Heraclitus, you know, no, no one man ever steps in the same river twice. It's not the same river for it's not the same man. So this idea of, permanence and impermanence and change and constant is an interesting one philosophically to think about. Um, even, you know, people like um, Hermann Hesse in, in Siddhartha and all that. So the link we'll make with the constants and the drivers is actually helpful because if you think of an onion and you're trying to peel what's disruptive, what's certain, what's uncertain, paradoxically, you can get a better handle of of what to sort of prepare for and anticipate. The five clusters of what we call the drivers of disruption are the following. One is new change, and that's basically a combination of, you know, we won't go into them in detail, but, you know, Moore's law, Metcalfe's law, you know, the network effect, the laws of accelerating return, certain technologies, the way they can combine and be cumulative and converge, which makes them self-reinforcing. And we're seeing that in AI a lot. So that combination of factors is creating a new type of change as these are really self-reinforcing in particular. The second driver of disruption, we call the hyper-premium on relevancy. And actually, we use the analogy of the, the Red Queen race from Lewis Carroll, um, the sister book to Alice in Wonderland, Through the Looking Glass, where the queen is speaking to Alice and she says, well, my dear Alice, you're lucky. Where I come from, it takes all the running or twice the running to stay in the same place. So the idea here is, like it or not, there's, an, there's a hyper premium on being relevant, whether it's competing with machine, whether it's the democratization of knowledge, whether it's microcycles or the end of trends, whether it's hyper-connectivity and reduced barriers. And, and again, to the neutrality, some of these are positive. If you're you know, 17-year-old girl in um, the south of India and you have a, a smartphone for $30, you can probably get pretty much as much information as a Stanford professor. And again, the reduced barriers to entry mean that, you know, an established company or person can be disrupted very quickly. Likewise, a smaller idea or a company or technology can become pervasive quickly. So so it's it plays to the duality. So this, So we have new change. We have the hyper-premium on relevancy. The third disruption driver we call irreversibility, and we're going to talk about this in a second, but the, the main feature and consideration with irreversibility is, you know, as the name indicates, you can reach certain milestones where it becomes impossible 
or very difficult to reverse. So in that category, we talk about climate, technology, and AI. Um, if you can no longer live on planet Earth, you know, you can choose to do a number of things that might be a little bit too late. So it's it's that element of irreversibility which is which is fundamental. The fourth driver of disruption is systemic paradigm shifts on society, on information, and and complexity. The world is is more complex. That has a number of features we can we can touch upon a bit later. But those systemic paradigm shifts are a major driver of disruption um, for us. And the final one is rapidly approaching new eras. And in that, we have new frontiers, whether it's space, global reshuffling, whether it's you know, the possibility of China becoming number one, the splinternet, and, and the world dividing. And then in that rapidly approaching new eras, we also have quantum and artificial life. You know, what are the implications of, of quantum physics or discoveries? What if you can create inorganic life in you know really real artificial life? And so those for us are really the way we frame the drivers of disruption, new change, hyperpremon relevancy, irreversibility, systemic paradigm shifts, and these rapidly approaching new eras. We're not there yet, but the you know the writing is on the wall. And the final point on this topic is, why the link between disruptions and constants and the analogy with impermanence or the the Heraclitus, um, you know, no man ever steps in the same river twice, is because if change is a constant, what's the difference between change and constants? If impermanence is permanent, what's what's permanent or impermanent? It's it's kind of linked. If you know that information is decision making, what's you know, disruption is information, but decision-making being driven by, by these things is a constant and complexity or decentralization or climate risk with renaissance. So that's where one can try and kind of have a frame where we we understand that disruption is a constant. And again, depending on your assumptions of the world, how you prepare for it and respond. That's a, that's a great point. You know, and, and in that, you, you, you reference the fact, which I thought was very... Very interesting that uh, advice from so-called experts is becoming less important, helpful, and correct. And instead, in in your work uh, that you recently put out, you you offer unvice. Um, would you explain what you mean by this, and what is the new language one should learn in order to thrive in the unvice environment? Yeah. So. It feels like just another unnecessary acronym because <laughs> the world has too many acronyms already. And there's a risk of the acronym police, you know, getting onto us. So we, we take that risk, but we do it with, um, with a deep conviction, which is the, the new language is one really, it's a language of, you know, of a understanding and appreciating uncertainty, really. And the idea is the following in a complex world, Basically, at that point of complexity, there are multiple drivers of change and there are unknown unknowns. You can't necessarily establish right answers and you can't necessarily beforehand know the cause and effect of something. So you need to to do trial and error. You need to develop some degree of sense-making and emergent behavior. And... That is different from something which is complicated, where there are known unknowns, where you have experts, you can rely on science, you know how to send a probe to Mars, you know how to fix an engine, you know how to launch a satellite, etc. And 
it's not that we're anti-science. We very much believe in science and we very much believe and respect in experts. It's just understanding that a lot of the world is complex and therefore these are unpredictable situations with unknown unknowns. What does that mean? It means we need constant adaptation and emergence. It means we need beginner's mind, shoshin, to use the Japanese. And therefore, we came up with the acronym ANVICE as an alternative to VUCA. VUCA is about 50 years old. It describes the environment which the, the US military, the DOD at the time, considered to be the operating environment of military operations or geopolitically. VUCA is V for volatile, U for uncertain, C for complex, and A for ambiguous. The reason we decided to come up with advice is for three reasons. And well, let me first mention what, what advice is and then mention the three reasons. The, the, the UN for advice is unknown. So that in a sense is a combination of uncertain and ambiguous. It's unknown. We don't necessarily know everything. It's volatile, so that's the same as VUCA. We then add I for intersecting, because today we find that boundaries are disappearing, and it's the combinations, the overlaps, the convergence that creates change, and also opportunity. It's the intersection of new fields that creates innovation, that creates drug discovery. So we recognize and respect that everything connects to everything else. And that I for intersecting, we feel is very, very important. C is complex and E is exponential. VUCA, maybe the world was less connected at the time. Maybe things were changing less quickly. Technology was less mature. We feel that we can't ignore the speed, trajectory, velocity of change. And so we have to pay attention to the rates of change and expect the possible explosions which go with exponential profiles. So our advice is really VUCA, but acknowledging the importance of how things intersect and how that creates change and cascades, and exponential to respect the speed and velocity of change. And why our advice? It's because in our complex world, we have to use and rely as much as possible on experts and science. But we have to acknowledge that we don't know everything, that science doesn't know everything, and they are unknown unknowns. And more and more, we have to be empowered with the agency to emerge, to discover, and also to rely more on our health, on ourselves than we might otherwise have. That's great. And great tra uh, you know, uh, transition to touch on the history and mission of the Disruptive Futures Institute. What prompted its creation and, and how does it fulfill its mission? It is. I always had in mind to have a foresight practice, which is tech central, more focused on, you know, clients and not necessarily, not necessarily educational, more like a practice or consultancy, a foresight practice. And I was always interested in writing books. But in my mind, you know, if you'd asked me the question five years ago, those books <laughs> would have been directed at you know, entrepreneurs or technologists or VCs or corporates. Um, the, the trigger with the pandemic, it was a validation of my concerns that there is a lot of change, that it is not understood, and that the systems are not really adapted to, to deal with this change. And that's where I sort of thought, you know, actually, this is a real important topic for a lot of people and a lot of different perspectives. And I would try through the Institute in terms of 
an educational platform, in terms of content, in terms of many things that are also free on social media, of just trying to help the world understand better the true nature of change, what to do to prepare for it, and especially that we have agency to not turn it into a big, scary monster. Mm-hmm. That's a great um, transition to, uh, you pull together uh, as part of that educational effort, the definitive guide to thriving on disruption, a collection in four volumes. I was hoping you could tell us more about the series and give us a sense of the effort that went into developing each of these volumes and what do you want to accomplish with these guides? Yeah, th- thanks for asking. It's it, it kind of happened in a funny way. I initially set out to write a book which was focused on maybe the 2.0 to 2.5 disruption as opposed to purely systemic, which we started the conversation with around feet of zero. And as the different events unfolded with the world in terms of um, the pandemic, the geopolitical issues, the the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, and many other things, it became evident that these topics were very interesting to a lot of people. I kept, I got started getting a lot of demand for, for talks, for half day programs, for building courses, for executive education. And so for the past few years, we've been developing those and delivering them, but very focused on, you know, a specific client wants a talk or an executive program. We develop, you know, a 15 hour program on whatever, you know, decision making and uncertainty and what have you. As we were doing that, we were building basically full-fledged educational programs. And then a lot of people were interested also from a personal perspective, you know, when you're looking at boards and companies, at the end of the day, behind that, the individuals who also have their own existential questions. And so at some point about a year and a half ago, I thought it made sense to to actually structure those executive programs and courses in a guidebook and to share them with the world. And if no one's interested, that's that's fine. And if people are interested, it's available. And so we we thought that there was enough material and content that it made sense to think about the volume one, which is the foundations, how do you reframe and navigate disruption? How do you make sense of a complex, nonlinear, and unpredictable world? The second volume is fine. We kind of get the, <laughs> the foundations. What, what are the frameworks? What are the essential frameworks for disruption and uncertainty? What practical frameworks can help you or your business stay relevant in the 21st century? And then we, we felt that a lot of demand was really individuals wanting to just think about their lives. And so we put together in the volume three, we curated elements which are very focused on your life, beta your life. What is existence in a disruptive world? What does constant change and uncertainty mean to you as an individual? From work to money, to longevity, to education, to the creator economy, all those kind of individual-centric topics. And the final one is a business, you know, disruption as a springboard to value creation. What does the unpredictable, complex, and systemic world mean for you as a business? They're meant to be self-contained, so people can take, you know, just one volume, or they can even hopefully look at a particular chapter or a particular page from A to Z or from you know front to back or back to front, we feel or we hope that it's it's certainly been designed to be self-contained um, in any way that anyone feels it's useful to do so. What tools, frameworks, and insights can help leaders turn uncertainty into opportunity? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. 
To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speak on Thriving on Disruption, with Roger Spitz, author of The Definitive Guide to Thriving on Disruption, a collection of four volumes. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. I want to transition a little bit uh, and get into the heart of some of the topics you're dealing with. And, you know, you point out while, while AI, artificial intelligence, uh, the capabilities associated with it are narrow today, uh, multiplying algorithms are you know, rapidly broadening their scope, and AI systems are already automating decision-making at scale. And I was wondering, as we delegate decision-making to machines, what kind of decisions will we rely on on algorithms for, and what will be the consequences? And where I'm going with this, Roger, is how does this connect to the concept of application of tech essentialism, and to what extent are we more influenced by technology and and its impact in curtailing our human agency. Yeah, so to your point, that really starts digging into the core, right? Because the implications on, on humans and in particular decision-making is, to me, one of the most profound elements of, a, you know, needing to think about technology. And that's one of the reasons in our drivers of disruption in irreversibility, we separate technology from AI. It's precisely because through AI, humans no longer have decision-making exclusivity. So the play with tech essentialism, as you would have gathered, is really adding technology to existentialism. So in the 20th or the 19th century, when you had Jean-Paul Sartre and Kierkegaard thinking about existentialism as a humanism, human decisions were exclusive to humans. So the existential condition was effectively, what is it to be human in the world? What is our freedom, agency, and choice as humans in the world? Tech essentialism for us is basically existentialism 2.0, existentialism in the 21st century. The impact and the duality of human and algorithmic decision-making. So you're looking at not just an existential condition, but an existential and a technological condition which is what is existence in our technological world. And the main point and the main implication of automating decision-making at scale is really that if technology is determining outcomes on our behalf, it's curtailing humanity's choice of different possible outcomes. 
So it really interferes with this idea of contingency, which is driven by our choices and actions, where our freedom as individual are contingent. And so what I find today is that we're seeking to embody or replicate human abilities in machines, as opposed to really rethinking our educational systems, rethinking how we view the world, rethinking how leaders are trained. And we should be relying on expanding and extending our natural human abilities because to the discussion earlier with the difference between complicated and complex, the more complex the world, that is where humans should be very strong. We're emergent, trial and error, we can make sense of the world in a way that isn't the same cause and effect where data is strong in a more complicated scenario. So for me, the fundamentals go beyond the normal essential questions around ethics and safeguards and, and technology to also thinking about what is humanity doing to develop better decision-making and better capabilities in our complex, unpredictable world. That's terrific. You know, um, the, the next uh, the next area I want to really focus on, it, it, it kind of delves a little deeper, and that is how close are we, Roger, um, to really sort of inadvertently slipping irreversibly into our worst nightmare? Where I'm going with this is the integration of technology in almost every facet of our lives. And, you know, what's the tipping point? What will tip us in this direction? And, and I'm wondering, what are the potential unintended consequences of the technology or innovation we're, we're contemplating right now? So basically, when are we going to slip into irreversibility? And what are those tipping point areas that, we're, that could trigger that? Yeah, so it's, the irreversibility is key. And, and with that, the, the tipping point and the inflection point. So it's, it's I, I like how you framed it. And indeed, that's how we approach um, that. And I think that maybe starting with what we mean by irreversible, the first element of irreversibility is that there's possible damage. In other words, that there are adverse consequences which can be very damaging, even if a particular technology or innovation holds the benefits that it's meant to. So that's the element of possible damage, okay? So it's it's that duality, you know, you can have something that is deriving benefits and positive stuff <laughs> or outcomes while still causing um, possible damage. The second thing is, and, and a simple example is, um, you know, developments in, in AI for drug discovery are making AI develop further capabilities. Those capabilities when deployed on drug discovery most likely they, you know, hopefully be positive. Um, but at the same time, where do you stop those capabilities of of machine learning, of neural networks, um, for other things that may not be just as focused or as beneficial as, as drug discovery? So anyway, the first element is, you know, the, of a reversibility, there's a possible damage. The second element is there's a potential tipping point. So there's a threshold whereby it might at that point become irreversible, that particular development. And the third element is that it's difficult to reverse it. So that goes with the kind of irreversibility. It can be very difficult or very expensive or profound or impossible to reverse the implications once they start manifesting. So that's where we need to start 
thinking about you can't just monitor and wait for things to manifest because the whole point with the difficulty in reversing is that those might be difficult to reverse once they manifest themselves. So examples of these are, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're hundreds probably, but one good example is gene editing, for instance, you know, for all the wonders that could potentially go with gene editing, you know, blood disorders, treating blindness, you know, muscular dystrophy or many other, you know, conditions. Some of the aspects of gene editing could involve, you know, nano scissors or, or ways where you're manipulating genes where you're making some edits, which can result in, in either unpredictable outcomes or where there's a point of no return, where, you know, whatever changes you're making continue for many generations and you can't change those future genomes by virtue of having made that initial change. And so that's kind of the framing. Now, the very important point, and I'm, you know, I'm glad you framed it like that with a tipping point and to understand really that aspect is, you know, you often hear change is slow, but I always talk about change is slow until it isn't. The issue with the exponential and why we added the, the E of exponential to, to VUCA to get advice is because of that point where you may suddenly get a tipping point. And, and there are many elements we can drive something to to an inflection point. And, you know, I, I won't talk about it now. It's, it's a longer discussion. But what I would say is that humans are bad at nonlinear. We're not cabled to appreciate exponential. We tend to basically not notice it until it's too late. You know, think about the pandemic. Um, and so the problem with irreversibility is that element where if you suddenly reach a tipping point, an inflection point, and you have an exponential profile, it might be too late. In addition to that, I think one of the things that makes it difficult to perceive and to anticipate change is Amara's law. People overestimate initially the hype from a technology. So you get bored, you get blasé, but you tend to underestimate the longer term impact. So if you look at exponential where you don't notice the change early on and you pretty much ignore it, and if you do notice it, there's a huge amount of overhype because of Amara's noise, take AI, metaverse, whatever you want. The combination of those two is what we call the inflection paradox, which is you know not only are we not good at detecting exponential profiles, but we kind of might even ignore what we should be spotting because of the effect of Amara's law. So that's that's basically our, our spin on it. No, that's a good spin. I, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier, uh, Roger, the the uh, concept of foresight in 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 the previous segment. I was wondering if we can talk about the foresight as relates to technology. What is technology foresight? What are the dimensions to consider in relation to unintended consequences of a really ever evolving technological advancement? And what is the difference, more importantly, between consequences which can be anticipated versus those which are unavoidable yeah so technology foresight is is i don't know if there's an official definition of it we we basically use it in the sense of you know what are the kind of cognitive or mental tools that can be used to consider the future of a technology and the the impact it might have on society and its environment and why we sort of separated from general foresight is due to the, you know, the stakes, the scale, the sophistication, and the irreversible nature of technology we talked about. 
it it has it's very specific animal now candidly technology foresight should be a tautology because given the features of technology everybody should really be thinking long and hard as to how to anticipate monitor and mitigate potential you know impacts and next order implications of technology but it's not always the case and i'd say there's a subset of of technology foresight which might be you know if and how one's able to anticipate governance structures and governance of how technologies might evolve. And there's a big debate around that, especially from technologists, as to how do you, you know, prescribe something without knowing what you're prescribing, because it's precisely unpredictable to a degree. So that's where we bring in two, three elements to answer your question, which is we feel that basically you should anticipate then monitor and then mitigate. So anticipate is you try to imagine what, to your point, can you anticipate as consequences versus what might just arise. And so we try and think hard about unanticipated consequences, which are effects which maybe we could have anticipated and avoided versus unintended, which arguably might be unavoidable. So... If you're looking at, you know, different possible unintended consequences, there's a lot that technology does, right? From the environment to the climate, to, to gender, race, income inequality, to disinformation of disinformation, privacy, ethics, bias. So there's a lot going on. And really, in the way those are analyzed, one should kind of think about and anticipate you should be debiasing databases because you know they're biased. You should be thinking about um, constantly monitoring with feedback loops because you know that there'll be things that arise. So you need the right monitoring and the feedback loops. You need accountability. You need independence. You need to understand how inflection points work. You need to understand the irreversibility, systemic approach to the monitoring because you can't look at point solutions. So these are all things in the monitoring which acknowledge and bring you towards really thinking more hard of what should be anticipated versus simply saying, well, you know, who knows, you can't, you can't cover everything. And the final thing is mitigating. Basically, the more you anticipate, the better you monitor with accountability, independence, with the understanding the reversibility and a systemic approach, the more you monitor with that, basically, the more effective any mitigation is likely to be. So that's, that's how we frame it. How do we rise above resiliency or adaptability to actually thrive on disruption? We'll explore this question and so much more when a special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. 
Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speak on Thriving on Disruption, with Roger Spitz, author of The Definitive Guide to Thriving on Disruption, a collection of four volumes. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. I want to um, move on, Roger, and talk about some of the practical tools and and uh, applications you have uh, in in your series. And the one I, I'd like to speak of uh, is around the AAA framework, if we could. What qualities and characteristics should we be developing to improve our abilities as the, as the world becomes ever more complex and unpredictable? And then where I'm going with this is what's the best way for us to understand and use that framework that you outline in your book? Yeah. So listen, it's like all acronyms, right? It's just uh, <laughs> behind it, there's this, this, this language and amazing ideas from many other, you know, bright, from, from other bright minds. But fundamentally, it's the following. We feel that for resiliency, it's important to have the right foundations, and that's anti-fragile. So we borrow, borrow anti-fragile from Nassim Taleb, from this Inserto um, series of five books, and in particular the one called you know, Anti-Fragile. And the idea is really that not only are you resilient to shocks, but that you strengthen with shocks. So here it's really calling upon innovation, tinkering, heuristic processes, um, understanding it's basically adapted to complex systems. It likes errors. It likes to thrive in randomness. It allows optionality. And so if you have those right foundations, whatever might arise, you're probably going to be more resilient or even better benefit from it. The next A is anticipatory. And here it's, it's really using the term in the, in the futures and foresight field. It's really thinking about the capacity to prepare for change and for any or many possible futures. So here you're, you know, you're interpreting weak signals, you're looking at next order implications, you're deciphering the patterns if you can. You're really thinking about that analysis between what is known knowns versus unknown knowns versus known unknowns and unknown unknowns. So it's really you're preparing for all possibilities and doing that in a way to, to avoid surprises, but also on the positive side to, to detect opportunities. And the final one is A for agility. And so we have anti-fragile, anticipatory, and agility. Now, agility is a, a word which is used a huge amount by in all kinds of different contexts. We use it as the agility to bridge short-term with the long-term. In other words, in anticipatory, you've thought about different scenarios. You've thought about maybe longer time horizons, next-order implications. But in the end, the present exists, and you need to, in the here and now, make sense of the world, experiment, amplify what's working, dampen what's not. You need to emerge in this complex world with the right feedback loops. And that agility is really what allows you to emerge in the present, but not firefighting and just forgetting your longer-term strategy. It's really constantly bridging your vision with the here and now. That's that's great. So, you know, uh, in terms of getting vision, when you mentioned vision in the here and now, I, I just think of sometimes organizations, uh, you know, effort around strategic planning. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, systemic disruption creates limitations uh, to relying on strategic planning. And I, I was hoping you could highlight some of those limitations. Yeah, that's 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 really key. And that's kind of the reverse of the coin of you know, the AAA and why I kind of fell in love and kind of 
a move to thinking more systemically and to to moving away from the more corporate strategic kind of approach of my day to day and you know spend a huge amount of time thinking about these topics so we a few of the limitations in our mind for for strategic planning one is that often you're looking for an answer instead of asking a broad set of questions and imagining broad set of possibilities. So you're really thinking about a particular outcome and think about how do I get there? Um, the second thing is um, maybe ignoring the domino or the ripple effects of the assumptions that are made. So you make a few assumptions, which is often going to give you a singular focus or a fixed outcome. And then what happens to those assumptions and to the reliance on those assumptions over time if they're wrong. You know, a great example is take the the Fed and inflation in the US. I mean, they probably have the best economists, the best models, the best data in the world. And they were like, oh yeah, sorry, we got caught short and we sort of thought we could control it and it was fine, but sorry, we have 10% inflation. And, you know, and then what are the implications and the domino effects of, of that? So it, it's really just, you know, understanding the systemic nature and the amplified domino cascades of, of wrong assumptions, uh, if you're relying on them. There's a piece we talked about earlier, which I think is a major limitation to, to relying on strategic planning, which is linked to, to those ripple effects of assumptions, which is the increasing cost of relying on a business as usual because of the, you know, the inverse relationship between predictability and uncertainty. So the more uncertain, the less predictable. So if you're relying on a strategic plan, well, guess what? That, that's problematic. There's a piece which is related to the E for exponential from our advice, right? Change is slow until it isn't. So again, you know, if you're missing the inflection points, if you're missing the cascades, whether they're good or bad, that, that has ramifications. Um, so in our view, strategic planning is really constantly seeking certainty by overemphasizing trend analysis, by trying to quantify the unquantifiable. You know, you can quantify and have the biggest spreadsheet in the world. It doesn't make the unquantifiable quantified. <laughs> so that acknowledgement that we're in a complex area that is unknown unknowns um, is, is really essential. And so the fundamental aspect to it, just to wrap up on that question, is that there's no substitute for being prepared and for building, you know, the right muscles for resilience rather than relying on a strategic plan effectively. Got a couple of more questions for you, Roger. Um, so, you know, disruption, as we talked about, is certain and omnipresent. But you point out, right, whether you like it or not, it creates more agency and possibilities and maintaining relevance requires, you know, constantly reframing, ideating and pro prototyping and testing our choices in, in, in regards to the, the constant disruption we're, we're dealing with. And so I, I was wondering, how do we rise above resilience and adaptability to thrive in disruption? And can you tell us more about the six eyes concept that you outline in your book that helps us understand the language of disruption. Yeah, it's a it's a, an aspect we try to not take too lightly because the risk is, you know, there are a lot of books out there about how to be, think about the future and be anticipatory or how to be disruptive. And we really wanted to take an existential and a human step back as well, which is, Beyond all the things we've talked about, actually, 
we should thrive on disruption. And on an existential level, the reason is that if everything was predictable and certain, we would have no freedom, agency, and choice. So the reality is that why we are able to thrive on disruption is precisely because disruption is a constant and it allows us to create whatever we want of ourselves and the world. And so when we thought about the ingredients to that, we boiled it down to what we call the six eyes, which is if you have intuition and develop it, you avoid preconceptions, you trust yourself, you trust your judgment, that is helpful. If you're inspired, you explore, you're curious, you're imaginative, you ask broad questions, you break from the present. If you're prepared to improvise, you experiment, you make mistakes, but mistakes are gifts, you accept the ambiguity. If you think that nothing is predetermined, you invent your future, that's the invention. And then you have confidence to wander, to fail, and maybe you'll stumble upon the impossible and you believe you can achieve the impossible. So the six eyes for us, which are intuition, inspiration, imagination, improvisation, invention, impossible, it's really what allows you to have that beginner's mind, to be curious, to accept failures, to be passionate, to, to use your agency, and to, to really think about the world of change in a way that's not necessarily negative, because there's a lot of positive things which come with those features of being you know, imaginative and inspired and intuitive, etc. Well, my last question for you, Roger, is around... Um maybe giving some advice and, and where I'm going with this is how can your work help government executives more effectively lead in an era where uncertainty and disruption seem to be the only and singular constants? Yeah, that's really one of the things I'm trying to achieve, which is why I didn't want to just write books for business people, because ultimately, if you don't address it systemically, including policymakers, including government, including all kinds of different things, um, it's potentially wasted. So listen, there are different ways, but I would say to kind of keep it keep it as a as a brief wrap up. One is is government foresight. Okay. There's certain countries which are very good, which have been doing it for decades, Singapore, Canada, um, some of the Scandinavian countries, you know, Finland even has um, you know, a committee for the future. Um, and a government foresight group, which is responsible and part of the prime minister's office. And they are tasked to think about things in terms of decades ahead, not just the lifetime of their mandate or their particular political life. They are basically looking at next order implications of change. They are looking at things systemically. So systemically, it really means addressing the endemic short-termism, which comes with a lot of public policy. So, for instance, you know, if you think about the levers for change in a systemic world, you know, how do you change the mental models? The, you know, that comes with education and, you know, public policy and governments and the agencies have an influence on education. The way you look at the world and see the world and the assumptions you made of education have a big impact on how resilient society will be. The structures, how you're regulating, what governance are you putting in place, what incentives to achieve a particular outcome. You know, we know that incentives determine outcomes. And then how do we monitor what's happening, the patterns and the trends? What is the disclosure? What is being communicated? So not all of these are led by public policy, 
or governments, but ultimately many of these are. And so once you start realizing that you're not looking at quick fixes or point solutions, but look at systemically, that's where you see the very significant role for, for governments and public policy um, beyond just what individuals can do and their family units and, and sort of commercial organizations. Roger, that wonderful advice. And, uh, you know, I want to thank you uh, for coming on today and, and talking to us about it. I, I was just wondering uh, if folks are interested, how can they get a hand, um, their hands on, on your series? <laughs> Thanks for asking. So, we have a website which is called Thriving on Disruption, which has a lot of resources. Um, we They are for sale on Amazon. They're downloadable on Apple Books, on Kindle. Um, by now, given the sort of two volumes out and two volumes coming out in January and February, most of the time, if you if you Google Thriving on Disruption, you'll find links that lead you either to, to the retailers that sell the books or the eBooks, or to our website, which which has more information, um, and and you know follow us also on social media. One of our objectives is is to democratize this, so we try and not be too. I mean, we probably fail, but we try to not be too complicated in terms of language. We try to have a lot of visuals, and we try to have a lot that's free and available on social media. It's mm, wonderful. Uh, well, I want to thank you again, and let's get let's come back together down the road. Very much look forward to that. Likewise, and it was a wonderful honor and a, and a great set of um, things to think about that, you, that you've raised. Thanks so much, Mike. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speak on Thriving on Disruption with Roger Spitz, co-author of The Definitive Guide to Thriving on Disruption and founder of the Disruptive Futures Institute. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at iTunes or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.